Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. What has happened in Post Shift? Just welcome back to another episode of the Post Shift Podcast. Of course, your host, Sean Sewell. Um, this one is the very first big episode of Season 3 of the Post Shift Podcast. So, last week, I did Dow the Groff as my 200th episode, um, and I've been very fortunate after today to sit down with Mark Farrell from uh, 10 to 1 Rum. Um, what an incredible story. Uh, I, this one really drew me when um, he reached out to me to chat about the rum company and stuff because I started researching him sort of outside of my usual uh, sphere of people that I talk to. Um, and the story of his entrepreneurship, his his journey was absolutely incredible. Um, I really hope you get a lot of value from this because I think that um, it really ties in the hospitality and entrepreneurship that I try and uh, tie into all the episodes. So I really hope you enjoy this episode, guys. Thank you so much to Mark and 10 to 1 team uh, for hooking this up because it was an absolutely fantastic interview. Um, I'll chat to you guys soon. Bye. Hi, how are you? Hey, not too bad, Sean. How you doing? Good, sir. Good. Good to finally meet. Absolutely. Pleasure to connect. So uh, I'm going to give you a little intro because I was... Um, I was kind of blown away, started research. I, so for my podcast, I've been in the industry for 22 years. And so a lot of the times I'm already sort of plugged into my guests in, mm-hmm. in ways of like mean at shows and working together and so on and so forth. Um, your story is incredible. So I want to go deep into it, but like MIT at 16, by the time you were 26, a mar- MBA from Harvard and a master's in philosophy by 36, a Starbucks VP, youngest VP in history. Um, and then you decide to give it all up and start a rum company. Yeah, which, it makes, makes, a lot, makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> which, mo- which most people, like I'm always, I'm always curious about the psychology because a lot of people ask me how I do the things that I do because I, I run six different companies, all hospitality-centric sort of companies and people mm-hmm. think I don't sleep and, you know, the usual, like, do you sleep? Yeah. Do you eat? Do you, like, relax? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Always curious of the psychology of, like, from the outside looking in, you had a sweet gig, Starbucks, VP, 36, awesome. And then you're like, you know what? I want to change it all up and – launch a not just a, a spirit company a, a, a sort of a boutique <laughs> rum company uh-huh. and sort of try and disrupt the rum market as is yeah this is a, a fairly a fairly simple straightforward <laughs> task right <laughs> you know I, i'm uh, i'm somebody who enjoys uh little challenges easy problems without a doubt so I'm a I'm a big comic book nerd. Um, as you can see, I got DC first editions here. Yeah. I'm, I'm packing yeah. out my office right now because I'm about to move. But um, what's your origin story like? What, what were you like as a kid? Obviously, you're super driven. But was it your upbringing? Was it your parents? What was what was what kicked you off in in this whole game? Yeah, you know. Um, so I'll, and by the way, I'll come back and I'll answer your your question a little more seriously in a in, in a second about sort of how you end up sort of diving into like rum and trying to reinvent that category. But you know, um, the, the origin story is is first, first and foremost where I'm from. So born and raised in, in Trinidad and Tobago. You know, I, I think I think that that you saw. You know, I spent first sixteen years of my life living there before I moved to the U.S. for college and everything else that kind of came afterwards. Um, uh, I am fortunate to be from, um, you know, a tremendously close-knit family. Uh, I have a, I'm actually, I'm actually right now visiting my parents, funny enough. So I don't know if they can hear me a couple of rooms away, but I'm fortunate to have two incredible parents. 
um, and also a twin sister. So we're a family of four, a nuclear unit. Uh, she's she's uh, she's actually the smart one. So she's incredible in her own right. And uh, she's a Cambridge-educated neurologist, has been practicing then for years. Well, um, so very different, very different life paths. But but no, but both of our parents are um, um, incredibly driven, hardworking, ambitious people. I think honestly, like even if I kind of take it all the way back to to the to the the experience of and being surrounded by my my grandparents. Both of my grandfathers had passed away a long time before I was born, but my grandmothers uh, I knew extremely well. And, you know, the, the, theirs is very much a story of, I, I always kind of talk to people a lot about this idea of um, standing on the shoulders, quite literally, of those who've come before you. And so as a little kid growing up, you know, you'd go and you'd visit your grandmothers and, you know, my mom is one of seven, my dad is one of seven, plus his um, four old half siblings. And, you know, you kind of see where they grew up and you'd hear the stories of their childhood and sort of how much sacrifice our grandparents made to give them an opportunity, you know, created out of almost nothing really. And, you know, they went away to university. Dad is a PhD economist. Mom is a, um, you know, master's in psychology. Now has been an entrepreneur for 30 years, started her own public relations firm. And those things just sort of get ingrained in you very, very early on, you know? And I think, um, you know, I remember being a little boy and, and, and talking about like all these things that I thought I was going to do and wanted to do, to do and should do. And, you know, um, my dad in particular kind of looking at me and saying, well, you know, well, well, you know, aren't you, aren't you supposed to do those things? And, and, and the point he was making at that one particular moment in time was that, you know, I think both him and my mom had have and had because it's it's still ongoing today years later but had sacrificed an incredible amount and sort of given us this amazing foundation that would allow us to sort of build on on on, on really what they had done you know um and, and and to me that's always felt as much like a i mean a, a, a obligation is obligation is the is the wrong word because then that feels like there's some sort of assumed pressure that's tied to it there actually is no pressure it just feels almost like a sort of a, a natural course of life if you will you know you kind of take that foundation you've been lucky to have and just do the best that you can with it and so you know uh, the, the 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 mits and the cambridges and all the stops along the way i think in, in a lot of ways um we're, we're, we're very much ordained by ordained by them and i think some of the desires that they had for us growing up Dude, and and how was how was the culture shift for yourself when you're a 16 year old kid? Like a lot of people at 16 would never even think about it. like not just moving out of home, but traveling <laughs> to the US. Yeah. And you're already what a year, two years younger than everybody else in that first year class. Yeah. How did you like take that sort of that as a challenge, or did you see it as a struggle, or did you just sort of go, you know what, this is the way it's going to be, so I'm just going to push through it. Well, you know, a couple of things. One is, you know, I I I, had, I skipped I skipped grades fairly early on. Um, so, you know, for example, when I was six years old, my classmates and my friends were, were eight and nine, right? So I was two years younger than my classmates for for most of my childhood, I guess. And so when I, it's, it's funny because I, I look at pictures of myself back then, and I'm just like holy shit, like I was, I mean, I was a, like a baby, like literally, I looked like a baby, you know? Um, who in their right mind would, would allow this guy to sit in any of these classes, right? Let alone get on a flight by himself. But but I didn't I didn't think of myself that way. I thought of myself as just part of a broader pair group. Uh, you know, I, play, I played a lot of sports in, well, middle school, high school, and, and also in college. And I think certainly some sense of like, you know, team-based activity and camaraderie and the sense of accomplishment that comes from that definitely helped with some of those adjustments for sure. 
Um, but you know, like it's, it's funny because one of the reasons I ultimately chose to go to MIT, um, which wasn't initially my, my, my first choice, but one of the reasons why I chose to go was that I remember in high school, my senior year, um, some of the other kids in my class were, were making a comment to the effect of, um, you, you know, they were saying, well, you know, big fish, small pond, right? You know, you, 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 can, do, you can do very well here, but like if you went to a place like MIT, you just get eaten alive was, was sort of, the, was sort of the, the insinuation or the comment, which I took. I didn't even really take it personally. I just kind of said, all right, cool. If that's what you guys think, let's go, let's go prove it otherwise. And so that was a big part of the, um, of the catalyst and the inspiration for, for going there versus going to like a Cambridge or Harvard or something initially, even though I, I got to those places uh, later on. Um, but yeah, you know, MIT is a very, it's a very curious place. You know, I think um, there's, there's, there's nowhere like it. Um, it's, I, I'm certainly really glad that I did it and had a chance to go through it. If I, I think if I look at my personality now as an adult, 37 years old now, um, it's very different from sort of like the quote unquote MIT persona. You know, I was, I was, I was, I was very um, good at science and math growing up. And so it kind of almost became a natural thing to fall into a school like MIT. But, but I actually always wanted to be in business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, again, one of the pieces of advice that my parents had given me at the time was, well, okay, yeah, we, we got it. We know what you want to do. That's fine. But um, get a grounding in like sort of science and engineering first. You build your analytical skill set. You always have something you can fall back on. And then you can go do your MBA. You can do all the other stuff later on if you really want to, uh, which, is, which is what I did. And I think super happy to have walked that path, right? Because, you know, even today, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm building a rum startup from the ground up very far away from chemical engineering and biochemistry and all these things. But the, analyticals, the, the analytical toolkit really does stay with you the whole way through. And that I'm certainly happy that I, that, I, that I have as a foundation for all that I've done in business since then. So with, uh, I suppose you're about the same age as I am. So like around that time, like that 25 year, like 2005, 2006, entrepreneurship mm-hmm. still was sort of this weird sort of defined, like I only until recently actually started like taking that handle because I was like, well, I'm just mm-hmm. in the hospitality business. Yes, mm-hmm. I have businesses, but like mm-hmm. I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur because I think there's a lot of... Uh, entrepreneurs out there nowadays you go yeah, you just yeah, have to flick through yeah. linkedin link you have to flick through linkedin for 30, yeah. 30 minutes and you'll see it um was that always sort of ingrained like get all this stuff out the way do school do the the, the foundations and then was always the goal to be like this sort of self-starting entrepreneur throughout life after school I think uh, the, the goal was always to sort of was to was to to be in business and to build business and to lead a business. I think the way in which that manifested changed over time. And, and, and you're right. You know, if I think back to myself in high, like sort of middle late high schools, so call that sort of like ninety six through ninety nine, two thousand, right? That's when you were reading about. Uh, think about Jack Welch. You pick up Business Week or Time, and it's like Jack Welch and G, and like that was the the era of sort of like the Uber CEO, if you yeah. were right. And I thought like like man, it'd be so cool to be like that guy one day, right? And I think that was maybe where some of the nexus of that ambition was at that point in time. You know, when I went to MIT, um, it's funny because, you know, chemical engineering, um, certainly certainly a very um, well-respected major at MIT, but like, you know, computer science probably was king of the castle in those early 2000s, right? Sort of dot-com, Silicon Valley. You, you know, it, 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 to your point, it's very interesting to look at where sort of like these um, 
centers of or these seats of power, right? <laughs> Where they are and how they kind of shift over time, and what you think is kind of like the thing you want to go, you want to go be or go do, right? Um, I, I think that for me, the desire to actually go out and create my own thing probably started emerging. I would say around oh six or seven. Um, I had been uh, I graduated I graduated from Cambridge in two thousand four. So by that time, I had been working for about three years. My first job was a Bain & Company. I was, I was doing strategy consulting, but focused on, on consumer. And coming to the end of that time, I was starting to think a little bit about, hey, you know, like if I were to go to business school, right? Like what would be the thing that I'd want to do after that? Like I, like, I knew I didn't want to do the private equity hedge fund thing. That, 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 that deep finance stuff was never going to be for me. I knew that I loved, um, I've always loved consumer. I love like, 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 like putting something in someone's hand, something that you can take and share with somebody else. You can see them enjoying it in real time, giving you feedback in real time. I, I fancied myself as a marketer, even though I probably wasn't a marketer just then. Um, but, but, but you know what, but you know, as we, as we talk about sort of timelines, the thing that was crazy was um, going to business school in 2008, right? Um, where, you know, timing affects these things in so many ways. That was the dawn of the financial crisis, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm out of the business school, September 2008, the world is falling apart around you. And I think for a lot of my classmates, it ended up being this moment of reckoning, if you will, where we all have to stop and think about, you know, a year from now, two years from now, when you leave business school, like, what is your impact on the world going to look like? Like, what sort of place are you going to carve for yourself? I think the idea of going back into investment banking or going back into consulting um, or certainly trading up into something else certainly felt more remote. I think that was a great crucible for myself and a number of my close friends to say, like, you know what? Like, like, like if I just took out a blank sheet of paper and tried to, in, to, try to imagine the future or write the future myself, what would that look like? And so I think it was kind of in that sort of 07 to 08 um, period when this idea of becoming an entrepreneur really took some more roots in my in my in my own mind. So how did like? Cause I think I, I read a, a paragraph where the whole Starbucks thing sort of come, came about completely serendipitously. Like uh, I think as an if you have entrepreneurial spirit, you can be very very dynamic in a corporate structure. Like I think. Mm-hmm. I think more and more people who have that entrepreneurial spirit instead of starting something themselves should look at how they can apply that sort of drive and that, that sort of hunger in a corporate mm-hmm. setting. How did the Starbucks mm-hmm. thing sort of come about and uh, become the, the youngest VP in Starbucks history? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think I think that's in history thing is so funny because I never said in history. I just I I, I wasn't around for the thirty plus years of Starbucks, so I, I just know what was the case when I was there. Right? These things take on a life of their own. So I'm just <laughs> laughing every time. I, I laugh every time. I I'm going to blame like, Forbes. No, no, you, I'm going to blame Forbes on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Forbes, Forbes, we got to we got we we, we got to talk about this. You know, I don't want somebody calling me up and saying they were the they were thirty one back in nineteen ninety two or whatever. <laughs> Um, um, but no, you're, you're right. The, the Starbucks thing was very serendipitous. And, you know, I, I mentioned leaving business school in 2010. I moved down to New York with a bunch of my closest buddies and we all kind of started our own businesses. I actually had a business for five years in the sports and media space, um, sports and media and then sports and e-commerce. Basically, we were working with a bunch of professional athletes, helping them to manage their content on social. And we were building these e-commerce um, products and platforms around them. Um, that business, very cool, amazing experience. Won't talk to Eric about that today, but but just to say that um, by the time I was on year four, it became clear that sort of the, the ambition that I had had to create a platform 
really wasn't materializing and it was evolving into more of an agency type of model, mm -hmm. which is cool if you want to build an agency, but I did not, I had no interest in sort of building an agency in sports. And so I was very much at this sort of crossroads, um, this, this, again, this moment of reckoning, not to overuse that term, but this moment of reckoning um, for myself and for the business uh, when I met Howard Schultz. And so that's why it, it, I always describe it as very serendipitous because I didn't meet Howard looking for a job at Starbucks or, you know, hanging out in Seattle. I was in New York running a sports and media business, you know, young entrepreneur trying to sort of find his feet and find his way. And we ended up having a conversation uh, um, through a couple of mutual connections. And off of the back of that, I got invited to go out to Starbucks. You know, he, he, he was, and I've said this a bunch already, but um, two things that are super impressive about him when you meet him. One is talks like an entrepreneur. And that's really, when you are yourself a young aspiring entrepreneur, that's really impactful because this is a guy that, you know, you see him on the cover of every magazine on, you know, every, you know, um, business, you know, um, t uh, television show, whatever. And he talks kind of like you, hungry, impatient, wants to build, wants to do more. And that's really, that's really um, 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 resonant. And the second big thing was very clear sense of purpose. You know, sometimes you, you, you meet someone and you're like, I just know what that person is about. And not, this doesn't mean they're about the same things you're about. You know, you and I are different guys, right? You're about these things. I'm about these things. But you're like, I know what that guy's about. You, you, you get that impression the minute you start talking to him. And, and, and he was impressed with my story for whatever reason and thought that, you know, it was cool what I managed to build, put this business on my back for five years and invited me to come out to Starbucks to, to meet with the broader leadership team there. His thinking was, you know, um, you have an interesting entrepreneurial story, you know, we're looking for more of that. You, you alluded to it, Sean, like, like, like some more of that energy that you can sort of bring inside of a big, uh, inside of the big mothership, if you will. And, and I really just kind of went out there with, with, with that intention in mind. I really didn't plan to, to pack up my awesome New York, you know, bachelor life and move to Seattle or do any of those things, but that's how it ended up working out. And yeah, I had a really phenomenal uh, three-year run while I was at Starbucks. Because it, it's a, it's kind of amazing because when you think of Starbucks, it, it is one of the original entrepreneurial startup coffee shops. When you really get down to the roots, the nuts and bolts of the 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 origin stories of Starbucks, um, but you would never sort of assume from the outside looking in as a macro consumer or as someone in the industry that that sort of spirit still lives on in a company of such a absolute magnitude. So, so you've been you were there for a couple of years, and so what what. Rum is very interesting because uh, we're going to get into the year 10 to one now because your story is incredible. And I, I've got a lot of friends who have started their own little brands recently. I got a friend in the UK who started a Calvados brand that's doing very well. I got a friend in New York who started a Geneva brand. Um, yep. And I suppose both of those are on the same sort of plane as, as rum because you're sort of tackling a, a super niche product and one that is horribly misunderstood by the macro and you were saying about consumerism and, and the consumer. I think it's always interesting. I'm in the, the cocktail space, I suppose, which is a very small niche market. And I always try to humble myself and like my peers and my, my and mentor kids. I'm like, only about 10% of people get what we do. You get that, right? In any city, New York, San Francisco, I'd say 10% yeah. of the market yeah. actually gets the cocktails that we're putting out, that we're fully geeking out about and we like mm -hmm. completely um, into. It's like, if you want a humbling experience, go to a liquor store and see what people buy. 
in your hometown. And I like, I like to hang out at a liquor store for like half an hour and watch what people are buying. And you'd get that odd person who picks a bottle of Mara or picks a, a really good bottle of whiskey or something. But nine times out of 10, you're seeing the, the classic American macro lagers walking out and Mickey's of vodka mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And you mm-hmm. wonder yourself, you're like, really all the stuff that I stress about in my day-to-day operations of a cocktail bar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. really negligent in the macro scheme of, of consumer yeah. and of yeah. the market. So what yeah. made you like tackle run? Because it's, it's a hard thing. Cause you're not just educating people on the category, but you're really trying to have to dispel a whole bunch of myths and mm-hmm. like hearsay that rum has. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right about a lot of things there. I'd say um, you, it, it's one thing to sort of educate someone about something that they never heard of or didn't know about, right? So, so you're starting kind of from scratch, neutral, ground zero. I think if you look at rum as a category in the U.S. in particular, um, you're almost starting from sub-zero, right? Because you have to try to... You have to try to, to sort of uh, unlearn a number of these like old tropes and stereotypes and sort of, you know, overly kind of narrow views of rum and, and, and what it is and what it stands for. Uh, I, I think it's very interesting that you use the word niche when you described it, because I, 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 I agree with everything that you just said there, but I actually wouldn't describe rum as niche, right? Rum is actually the third largest spirit by volume in America, right? It, it, it's, it's as big as, as or actually bigger than tequila is by volume. The problem is, all the volume is in the low end of the market. So when you and I are walking around on a day-to-day basis, right? If you think about how you, how and where you encounter spirits in your daily life, rum then ends up feeling very niche, right? Because, you know, about 20% of the rum by volume in the U.S. is priced $20 and above. Uh, it's about 70% for tequila. It's priced $20 or more. Same for vodka, same for whiskey. And you, you're seeing that, 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 that premiumization happening in, in, in gin and mezcal and other categories today too, right? So, 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 so you're right. There is a real challenge um, that has presented itself with rum. But, you know, what, what you call a challenge sometimes I also call an opportunity, which is like the brief is very clear, right? We tend to when we talk about this idea of <clears throat> rum reimagined. I'm trying to take everything that you as a consumer, uh, uh, not you, Sean, just you everyday consumer, right? <laughs> think, you, think, you, think you know about rum, and I'm trying to turn that on its head, right? Through the lens of the product and through the lens of the brand story or the brand narrative, right? Um, I'm going to come back to how we do that in one second, but just to kind of go back to, 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 your, to your earlier question, you know, I think, um, why pick rum? Well, well listen, um, I, think, I think do what you know and do what you love is actually the very easy answer there. I'm from, remember, so let's go back to the beginning of the story. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. I'm born in the Caribbean, right? So, you know, where does rum come from, right? Sort of, uh, you, one of my observations for a long time has actually been that the way that I've always observed rum, rum culture, Caribbean culture, right? Where I'm from in the Caribbean, I've always seen a massive gap between what I have experienced there and the way that I often see it being brought to life in this market, right? And that chasm to me presents the opportunity. If I can begin to bring you as a consumer a little bit closer to that experience that I know and that I've experienced, right? Then all of a sudden you're setting yourself on this path to the reimagination of the category. So for me, um, I could not be here talking to you about a gin or a mezcal or an American whiskey. Um, I, I, I don't drink those. I don't know anything about those. And certainly I couldn't, I couldn't present a heritage story or a brand story in a similarly authentic way because those things are not sort of native to, 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 to where I'm from or even who I am as a person, right? Um, so so, so it, it had to be rum. Ironically, the timing had to be after coming out of Starbucks, right? And I, I, going back to the Howard reference for a second, I think if you have 
some entrepreneurial um, energy stirring within you. And you have a chance to see somebody else up close, right? Who literally is sort of like building their purpose. And that's what Starbucks was, right? Like, like Howard has this very specific dream in mind of, 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 of Starbucks' place in the world, which by the way, is not about coffee. It's actually about community and connection and that sense of third place. That's what Starbucks is about for him. If you see that up close and you're an entrepreneur, you say to yourself, well, holy shit, like what would it look like for me to create something like that? Like, like, like what's, what's my version of that? And again, Coming back to it, for me, that had to be 10 to 1. It, it, it had to be rum. So, 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 so yes, you know, um, certainly a, a niche product, at least if you think about it in the premium space, certainly one that has suffered from a very narrow, tropish, somewhat caricatured articulation over time, for sure. Um, having to get the consumer, not just from ground zero and neutral, but sub-zero and bring them into a more positive and enlightened view of it. But... It, it, it had to be this and it had to be now. And so here we are trying to make 10 to 1 happen. So what's uh, the meaning behind the 10 to 1 name and the 10 to 1? Yeah, so the name 10, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the name 10 to 1, you know, I tell people um, every element of this brand is intentional. You pick something out, you ask me, why is it this color? Why is it this height? What's that little bird? Everything about the brand is intentional. Um, 10 to 1 uh, takes its name from the original Caribbean Federation, which consisted of 10 countries, right? So the idea of 10 becoming 1. Uh, and as, as, as Trinidad's uh, first prime minister at the time said, he said one from 10 equals zero. He was, he was perfectly good at math, but he was making the point that if you remove one from the collective, the whole thing falls apart. So, so we say that 10 to 1 is a brand that is based on this idea of community, strength in numbers, this notion that we're all stronger together than we are apart, right? I mean, real moorings of the brand itself. Um, if, if, if you happen to have a bottle in, in front of you, you'll have a bottle right here, but um, you would see that on, on the bottle itself where it says TTO, uh, that, I, that is Trinidad and Tobago. That's also our country code, right? So there's a cool secondary meaning, a little hidden cipher that's a shout out to the home country um, that's, that's on there as well. So whether it's the name 10 to 1 or, or our logo, which is the Scarlet Ibis, the national bird of Trinidad, or the old shipping label references that we use to tell the story of the bottle and the blend, we really wanted to create something that felt very, um, very contemporary, very modern, very elevated in its design, but it's still grounded in these elements of, of real Caribbean history, culture, and heritage. Bringing that story to the forefront, I think, was super, super critical for us. What were the biggest misconceptions of uh, the category that you're trying to dispel, Nick's, like get past? Because I, I understand that Bacardi has got a massive stronghold, especially in the white rum market. and. Yeah the white rum market is a very hard one because a lot of white rums that come out of, uh, come to the U S and come to Canada are basically sugarcane vodkas and they've been distilled over distilled a million mm -hmm. times. And exactly. Flavor exactly. Is super difficult. What are the big misconceptions you're really trying to tackle head on? Yeah, totally. So, so, uh, in my view to build a successful business, I, I, I think of it as like two hands to clap, right? One hand, uh, the product side, the other hand, the brand side. If you get those two things together, you give yourself a shot. Not guaranteed, but you give yourself a shot to be successful, right? And hopefully you build something pretty enduring along the way. So, so what, um, what, what notions are we trying to dispel? On the product side, uh, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I am trying to introduce a more elevated, more versatile take on rum, probably in a, in a nutshell, right? Um, our dark rum, is, is, is uh, both of our rums are blends. So our dark rum is a blend from four countries, Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica, and the Dominican Republic, it's an eight-year-old rum. 
Asian ex-bourbon barrels. I, I actually like to mention that pretty frequently because we think this idea of building bridges to consumers in other categories. You talk about dispelling those, those, those notions. Building bridges to consumers in other categories is very important. So if you're a whiskey lover or a bourbon lover, you're going to find some very um, reminiscent or very resonant notes that are in this rum. Um, no added sugar, no added coloring, no added flavoring. Either rum. Talk about, right? I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to rum reimagine every step along the way. We think let good rum, let great rum stand on its own. And if you ask me to describe this rum in a single word, I'm, I'm using the word versatile, right? Um, our dark rum is designed so you can drink it, um, you can sip it neat, rocks, splash of soda water or coconut water. Those are my ideal mixers for it. Actually, maybe some tonic. Rum and Coke is not part of our universe, just as not. Um, and also can really elevate your craft cocktail game. So I, I think the, I, I, my favorite cocktail of all uh, 10 to 1 cocktails is the rum old-fashioned. Um, creates an incredible Manhattan or a Negroni as well, really kind of the world's your oyster. And that's the way that we've kind of thought about using the, the, the dark rum to kind of, you know, reshape your perspective on that category. Uh, the white rum, you're right. I think, I think in some ways, maybe even more challenging because there is a single dominant brand or bottle, that bottle of Bacardi you mentioned, that sort of is, is, is conjured in the minds of a consumer every time they think about white rum. And I think for us, we wanted to find a way to challenge that consumer's perception of what a white rum can deliver. Um, so you said, yeah, the, the what you said is so spot on. A lot of bartenders describe white rum as like adding vodka to a cocktail. You add, it for, you add it for liquor, but not for anything else. So the way we thought about that was combining some Jamaican pot still rum. Um, so Jamaican rums, you know, are known for being actually the opposite. Big, bold, funky, high proof. If you're a rum nerd, you love them. Gotta love your dunda. Gotta love the dunda. You gotta love your dunda. <laughs> gotta love your dunda. Love your funk, right? Um, but for a lot of consumers here, those, those rums feel a little inaccessible. So we took some of those elements you'd love in a white rum, those grassy notes, herbaceous qualities, a little bit of fresh citrus. If you, on the nose of our white rum, we have people who fall in love with the rum based off of the nose alone, right? Um, but... Uh, on the palate, drinks, uh, we, we call it sort of a zesty minerality, drinks very clean, refreshing. Um, it's actually 90 proof. And we did that in part because the rum itself has incredible body. You want it to stand up in a cocktail. You put this head to head with any white rum in a daiquiri test, uh, I think you'd be, you'd be, you'd be amazed, you'd be flawed at the results. And so, and so I tried to take um, that same list of, uh, what do we call them? Like, 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 like previously held perceptions about rum and like you almost kind of turn that into a brief for the product, right? Like they think it's this, so I'm going to do that, right? They think it's full of sugar and, right? So, 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 so even the dark rum, the dark rum is a little dry on the finish. Mm -hmm. you're, trying to per, you're trying to battle this idea that rum is cloying, overly sweet, a sugar bomb. They think this, I'm going to do that instead. And really the whole product is an, is, is, is an exploration of, of, that, um, of, of, of that sort of dispelling of all these old notions, right? Um, one thing I'll just say really quickly on the brand side, because I mentioned the other hand that's needed to clap, is that um, to me, the narrative around rum can be summarized as pirates and plantations, right? That's, that's, that's literally the narrative around rum. Yeah. It's, it's all these old tropes, all these old post-colonial vestiges that, that, again, I think have no bearing on someone who actually is from the Caribbean today. And so, and so uh, I'm trying to take you away from that. I, 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 think, I, think, I think you cannot, though, just um, to build a successful brand, you can't just say what it's not. You have to say what it is. Mm -hmm. So I can't just say, well, I'm not doing the old pirates and sea monsters and fables thing. I'm, well, okay, okay, Mark, so then what are you doing? And there, I think for us, a 10 to 1, the idea is trying to ground the brand in a much more 
contemporary, much more inspired, much more authentic view of Caribbean culture, right? Those elements of celebration, those moments big and small and high and low that are part of the fabric of who we are as a people, we don't talk about those things enough, right? They aren't celebrated enough in the category for a spirit that literally was born in the Caribbean, born and raised in the Caribbean. So as somebody who is from Trinidad, who takes great pride in my, my heritage and my culture and my sense of place, let me try to tell some of those stories through the lens of the brand. And to me, if you can do that well, then again, you've given yourself a shot. And tell those stories so that the the old tropes just get pushed aside, the pirates and the plantations and yeah. sort of like the history, yeah. the history's there, but not played into. I do like the mm-hmm. fact that I, w- I was reading up and I do like the fact that you've, with the blend, the different countries, because the Caribbean rum is like people, I don't think people really wrap their head around the fact that every country has is different and then every distillery within that country is different so like mm-hmm. when people say you say jamaican ramen people go the dunder the the funky that sort mm-hmm. of thing but you go to a different distillery and they don't do they don't do that dunder sort of method it's very clean and di- like it's it's mm-hmm. a rabbit hole that you can that slippery it's it's i think it's more complex than say scotch whiskey where you go region mm-hmm. to region distillery distillery absolutely Every region's got sort of Islerus, you know, it's going to be smoky. Highlands and mm-hmm. Speyside are going to be that lighter style, lowlands, so on and so forth. But in the Caribbean, you've got pot stills, column stills, the fermentation process, how much mm-hmm. sugarcane must goes into each batch. Like, is it all just molasses? Is there a little bit of sugarcane juice in there? Sugarcane juice, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, seriously, you know, and, and, and that to me is kind of like the dream, right? Which is like, you know, to me, once people start going out a rabbit hole, right, you, you find a lot of joy, right? And in many ways, you know, it's almost like a, I think of it as like a decision tree, right? Like, like, are you going to use molasses or sugarcane juice? Like, you know, are you going to do pots or columns still? Are you going to, are you going to age or not age? What kinds of barrels? You're going to blend? Like, 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 you know, all of these things give you an opportunity to create something that feels very unique. And as a consumer, I think when you give consumers a chance to like get a little wedge or a little window into what that looks like, then it really starts to unlock the possibilities of rum from, you know? And so, and so, and so my hope would be that, you know, obviously we, we start with these two core skews and they really are the, the, the workhorses for the brand. But over time, maybe as, as folks start to get more familiar or start to get more curious, you can maybe begin to introduce some of those little vignettes, some of those little stories um, that I think would be, that I think would be tremendously impactful as well. Have you been happy with the success of the brand so far? Cause it's been, has it been about 12 months since you launched? Yeah, it's been about 15 months, 15, 16 months since we launched. Um, <laughs> we, 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 obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Asterix, asterix, right? <laughs> in, the, in, in, in the ultimate vortex for the last seven months. Um, uh, am I happy with the, with the launch? Um, we, we, we had a, we had a team meeting this morning and we were, we were talking about this, this particular thing that we were supposed to get, um, uh, nominated for or mentioned for or whatever. And, and the team was sort of joking about my very, um, they said it was a, a typical mark response. A mark response is like, even when the thing is kind of amazing, I just seem very dissatisfied with it. Right. And, <laughs> and, and that is, that is, that's, that's my nature. You know, um, um, I mean, I'm in search of, of, of excellence and in search of perfection here. So, you know, to answer your question, I don't know. I don't know what could have happened in the last 12 or 15 months that would have made me say, yes, I'm so thrilled with the launch. Other than, you know, are we the biggest rum in the country? No. <laughs> As everyone heard the 10 to 1 story, no, they haven't. Okay, great. Well, that just means there's a ton of work that's left to be done still. Um, am I... Uh, am, am I, am I, am I, do I feel a sense of pride in what we've done to date? Yes. Am I optimistic about the future of the brand? Absolutely. I think if you look at, um, 
the early signs from those first 15 months in market. You know, you talk, uh, you know, in, in, in the world of consumer tech, you talk a lot about product market fit, right? Like, 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 is there a product that has found some fit and some sense of place with a given customer or a consumer? I, I think we have that. You know, the response from the trade has been incredible um, to, to both rums. I think, I think the trade really, I think, is, is super intrigued by the white rum and what it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the consumer side, you know, pop onto social media, look at the comments, listen to the reaction. Do, we do a bunch of virtual tastings. Like people, people love the product. They don't like it, they, they, they love it. And so certainly that's been awesome. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that I think we've established a very solid sense of who and what we are as a brand. Um, you know, again, and, and this, by the way, I, I did take from some of my Starbucks experience. I think I have, I have much better brand discipline. That's why I call it brand discipline, a sense of who and what you are coming out of a place like that and having a chance to kind of sit at the table and see how other people do it for a while. And there, I think, you know, the sense of like, yeah, okay, I kind of get what those guys stand for, where they'll speak up and where they won't and what they represent and what they don't. And so I think if you have those things after 15 months, again, you're giving yourself a chance. And so now to me, our, our, our job for the next 18 months, because there's no point planning beyond that. <laughs> the next 18 months is, okay, use that foundation and we're taking it to new markets. We're scaling some of our intention with consumers. Um, you know, we're figuring out how else and where else we can refine the use cases for the rum. We're continuing to kind of excite the market with new news and you keep on building from there. So, you know, I'd say, I'd say yes, first step, first step of like, 300 steps has been has been has been great and really positive and we have to take a lot of pride in it but satisfied no because there's there's just there's just too much road ahead of us still yeah 2020 is a little bit like the asterisk asterisk it's like having a, yeah, a yeah. home run, uh, having yeah. the most home runs but the season totally, being longer totally. and Babe Ruth's season used to be shorter and all that sort of stuff totally um, totally totally one last question i don't want to take up more any more of your time but like uh as an entrepreneur um, always sort of challenging yourself. And, and it seems like you, you do it for passion over everything else, which I think is also a hard thing in this age and age because you, you, you don't go into the rum business if you think you're going to make a, a million dollars and sell it, off to, sell it off to a private equity firm in two years. Um, mm-hmm. what, what keeps you driven? Because really you've, you've sort of, as I said in the very beginning, you like hit a point where you are at the top of your game at 16 at MIT, you hit a point at 26 and you've got an MBA and you hit a point at Starbucks at 36 and you could just rest on your laurels. What's the the one thing that every morning when you wake up, you're just like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to be better than I was yesterday. I, I, I take you back to, the, to that, that story of, of, of eight, of eight year old me, you know, eight year old Mark. And, and, and again, you know, what was, what was imparted to me very early on was this idea of, taking what you've been given and, you know, you're fortunate in any one of a number of regards and, and, and building on it, doing better than those who kind of came before you, you know? So like you asked me what, what, what honestly, what's the most important thing to me? Uh, making my parents proud, uh, making my family proud. I would love for them to be like, oh, holy shit. Like look what that little guy did, you know? <laughs> um, and I think I, I, I wake up every morning with that as a, as a major motivating factor. And then you can sit down and say, I'm going to start this business and like, I'm going to start it to sell it, right? I mean, you know, maybe it gets sold. Maybe that happens. But, like, you don't build it with that in mind. I think you skip too many steps and you just kind of mess up the whole process there. So, to me, it's a function of, of, of that sense of familial pride for sure. And then also, you know, I, I, would, I, would, just, I, would, just, I would just sort of um, 
politely kind of um, deflect one thing that you said a second ago, which is the idea of like being at the top of a game. To me, none of those things have ever represented being at the top of any game personally, right? They're just, they're just steps along the way. They're just because because that's none of those things have represented a final destination from my perspective. And I think as somebody who wants who wanted and wants to create something in consumer, there's no greater joy you get from seeing people experience it and share it and all of those things. And and, and I would love to be in a place where we look at this brand five years, seven years, ten years from now, and people are pointing at that bottle and they're saying, "Yo, you you guys remember when we used to think about rum like this? Remember, like, you know, the olden days when we used to think rum was that." Now actually, it's this instead, and 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 you're you're finding replaces like some much more sort of um, positive and contemporary and modern narrative, and people really have an appreciation for this appreciation for the spirit. I would love for ten to one to be the bottle that they reference as having ushered in a lot of that change. And so, what what motivates me every day is really straightforward. You know, if I when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, does that job feel like it's done? Nope. <laughs> it feels like it's just beginning. So, all right, then roll out of bed and just keep on chipping away until one day, hopefully you feel like you can kind of get there. But no, we have a, we have a long, long road ahead. And so to me, all of those things were, were less about being top of the game and more about, you know, great. Like, like, you know, you found another little mini milestone, little mini milestone, put some fuel in the tank to keep on going. That's how I think about it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it. It was an amazing conversation, amazing interview. And I, I'm really looking forward to when the rum comes to Canada to being able to try it myself. Um, yeah, absolutely. So thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it, man. My pleasure. Great to spend the time, Sean. Hopefully yes, thank you. Soon. I'll ch- chat to you thank soon. You. Pleasure. Bye. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Um, Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.